everyone, I'm Belinda, and you're listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR in Edmonton. For those of you who have never tuned into Shout before, every month we pick a topic relevant to librarianship and information studies. We're a group of Masters in Library and Information Studies students here at the University of Alberta. And every month we bring you fresh library and information studies-centric news. This episode, we're going to get real with you. We didn't have it in us to record new content because, hey, life is really hard right now. Instead, we've decided to make what we're calling a Frankenstein episode. We've selected three of our favorite segments and mashed them together with some collaborative hosting at a distance. Before we dive into the vault, I want to get an important message across. Productivity should not come before mental health, especially right now. It's okay if you find yourself sleeping more. It's okay if you don't work out every day or if every meal isn't Instagrammable. It's okay if you don't learn something new or complete that project that you've had on the back burner for a while. Not everyone has the privilege of making the most of mandatory isolation. And yes, I say privilege and not discipline. To boil it down to discipline is to ignore the fact that we're facing a global crisis and that everyone is experiencing this differently. Don't hesitate to get help if you need it. I'll be mentioning some resources following this segment, so stay tuned. We're going to begin with a throwback to our first episode of the season. Joel Bletchinger and Timothy Arthur sat down with Sam Popovich at CJSR headquarters to discuss his new book, Confronting the Democratic Discourse of Librarianship. In this book, Sam traces the connections between library history and the larger history of capitalist development. So let's get started. First of all, I just wanted to thank you so much for this book. It's I was saying to Tim that it feels so vital and it's so it's so it's so readable and it's so um, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I hope so. It's so refreshing and heartening to uh, encounter a book within LIS that that is engaging with history and theorists and. Yeah, I found that uh, it stands alone even as sort of an introduction to um, sort of more intersectional Marxism Mm -hmm. or Marxist theory, which is great um, given the context and and how alien sort of that is to library discourse in general. Yeah, I think while I was working on the book, a lot of the the research that I would come across would kind of pick one little way of, of addressing things, right? They'd pick Habermas or they'd pick Gramsci or they'd pick Bourdieu um, or they'd pick, you know, a sort of narrowly focused class analysis or they would... You, you didn't so much see it with, with gender and race where those were already a little bit broader than uh, the more narrowly focused kind of LIS positivist research. So it, it was important to try and give a kind of broader account, which is one of the things that I think is missing from the dominant LIS way of looking at things, which which I talk about in the book, like how that came to be. Would would we be able to go through the, the periods that you draw? So I start from about 1850, which is when the Public Libraries Act was passed in Britain. And it's around the time that things like the Boston Public Library were founded. So 1850 seemed like a good moment to kind of begin this idea of connecting library history with uh, larger changes in capitalism. So 1848 is the revolution sweep Europe. Um, it's the last gasp of proletarian power following the French Revolution that is completely squashed by the finally victorious capitalist middle class. Um, 1848 is when Marx and Engels write the Communist Manifesto. 1850 is when the Public Libraries Act gets passed. And so it always seemed like there had to be a connection there. But from 1850 to uh, about the time of the First World War, you've got a triumphant capitalist class. You've got lots of technological advance. You've got lots of money. You still have periodic 
crises, but in general, things seem to be advancing really fast. And because the the capitalist class is committed to parliamentary democracy, because they've just spent so much time wiping out the feudal nobility, they come up with this idea of democracy and popular participation, which requires then that they completely control it because they can't just let anyone vote. So they have to come up with institutions which create the right kind of citizen or subject for that period of triumphant capitalism. And they have a few different institutions. One is the public library. One is the public school system. Ursula Hughes, in her book about digital labor, talks about the the fact that capitalism now needed employees who could read and write. So they had to guarantee that that workforce was available. And so they created public schools and universal education. And so the first period of, of librarianship, you know, the beginning of the ALA, the period of Cutter and Dewey, is very much in line with a kind of technocratic, triumphant capitalism where where knowledge is transparent and you can provide the best books. Uh, I don't remember the motto of the ALA, but the best books for the lowest price to the most people, something like that. And there's no troubling of those ideas. Those ideas are, are very dominant. And then you hit the period of the First World War, the Depression, the Second World War. So the entire period from 1914 to 1945 throws this entire bourgeois project into crisis. Libraries have to struggle to figure it out. They end up coming down, for the most part, on the side of supporting the war against fascism, which you know means in the binary terms of capitalist logic, supporting the bourgeois state. Then after the Second World War, the second long period of kind of stability is the post-war settlement, the compromise between capital and labor and everyone pulling together. Bushman's favorite. Bushman's favorite. So John Bushman kind of thinks about the period after between the Second World War and uh, the transition to neoliberalism in the early 1970s as a period when capitalism was doing what it was supposed to do, uh, making people more prosperous, increasing standard of living, things like that. Ed D'Angelo, in his book, Barbarians at the Gates of the Public Library, looks further back to that first period around the 1870s, which a period that when he calls what we would call classical liberalism, and he calls ethical liberalism, held sway. That's the period that he's looking back to as his golden age of of libraries under capitalism. And so, you know, the post-war settlement comes to an end with the transition to neoliberalism. There's another uh, long period of crisis. And, you know, one of the kind of common ideas in Marxist theories of ideology is that in those periods of crisis, ideology kind of doesn't work, right? All of people's positions and values become exposed and they can't be mystified and hidden to such a great extent. So that happened in the period of the wars. It happened in the transition to neoliberalism. And then you know, the whole set back in with the, the end of history and the end of ideology after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, so you have this period from 1990, 91 till the global financial crisis, 2007 and 8, when um, you couldn't even think about talking about challenges to capitalism. Capitalism had proved its enduring value um, because it had outlasted Eastern, the, the Warsaw Pact countries and the Soviet Union. And each, so each of those periods corresponds to a period of stable-ish uh, values in libraries and the dominance of this democratic discourse. And libraries are seen to be contributing and core partners in these periods of stability and, and prosperity. I remembered a question yeah. Yeah. that I had arising exactly from this trajectory. Okay. I love how I think via Michael Harris, you articulate that there was a, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, a partisan librarianship before the construction of the neutral librarian paradigm. And it was almost like the war period. You're quoting a lot from Harris at that point in the book during the library myth 
section, mm-hmm. I think, the war period afforded a opportunity to rearticulate the vitality of libraries to the bourgeois society. Like it was like fascism; they saw it as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Do you see that as mirrored in contemporary times with uh, resurgent fascism? Yeah, and and I know Bushman has written on that as well. Like people saying our our our, our opportunity to prove our relevance has mm-hmm. has arrived again with resurgent fascism. Mm-hmm. Like that was a really interesting doubling mm-hmm. in the book that. I was thinking about. Yeah, there's this sense, I think, within the democratic discourse of librarianship where those moments of crisis are the moments for us to prove our value. And you see this, again, going back to the intellectual freedom discourse, you see this especially there, or maybe more starkly there, where the challenges posed by fascism, or now resurgent fascism, the right way to meet those challenges is to absolutely affirm the neutrality and objectivity of the library and a maximalist intellectual freedom free speech view. Mm -hmm. And which you point out via Harris, there was an authoritarian librarianship that Mm -hmm. existed before that construction of the value neutral librarianship. I find that like the the, the Dewey. (laughs) The missionary, the library faith. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and it and, and again, that's I think how librarianship mirrors all of these these things that are happening in the broader society. So the transition to a computerized scientific view of like dominant view of the world after the war, at, with the rise of computerization, the rise of value-free positivist social science, meant that librarians had to take the position that the profession was neutral, that they were scientists, that they were not partisan, that they were not subject to their, their own values. They were responsible to facts. They weren't responsible to values. So, so that's, that's part of the through line that's running through the book is how the culture of librarianship always mirrors the underlying culture of the moment of capitalism that we're in. Going back to your point about the, the kind of doubling down on that position in moments of crisis, to me, that doubling down only ever serves the sustainability of capitalism. So if you don't have a problem fundamentally with the world, if you think the world either now or in the past was something worth sustaining, not fundamentally changing, then in moments of crisis, you are always going to take the the point of view that this is what we need to do to get things back to normal. This is what we need to do to make America great again. This is what we need to do to make sure the sun doesn't set on the British Empire. And so those positions are always going to contribute to the sustainability of capitalism, right? That, that it, they're locked together in that way, which is why I think it, it's important to say at the outset, it's important to be clear and explicit that the way the world is has to fundamentally change. And none of the earlier forms of the world as it was are justifications or are things that we should try to get back to, that what we need is a fundamental restructuring of the way things are. And so the the dominant, the standard arguments from intellectual freedom, the standard arguments about neutrality and objectivity don't fly if you fundamentally think the world needs to be changed. Thank you so much, Sam, for giving your time to us and discussing your book with us uh, for the podcast okay. slash radio show. <laughs> of course. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was great. That was great. Sam's book is so timely. As promised, I have a few mental health resources for you. First, Dr. Peter Silverstone, professor of psychiatry at the U of A, created the Center for Online Mental Health Support, so be sure to check it out. Second, isolation can be problematic for people who are suffering or have suffered from eating disorders for a number of reasons. So EDSNA, the Eating Disorder Support Network of Alberta, is offering an online eating disorder support group. Definitely worth checking out if you're having any concerns about body image and food. 
Third, of course, there's tons of free meditation and yoga videos available online as well. My favorites right now are offered through Moto Yoga and Sherwood Park via their Instagram Live. And lastly, the Alberta Mental Health Line is available 24 hours a day at 1-877-303-2642. Stay physically and mentally healthy, everyone, and remember to support your local businesses. Now over to Dan. Hi, thanks for joining me on my search for the cool, the unique, and the unusual items present within library collections. When it comes to libraries, a question that comes up a lot might be, What's he building in there? Or rather, what is going on in there? Both within a librarianship program and within society at large, it's common to hear the idea that libraries are changing or are situated within a changing culture. Speaking in the language of clickbait, do people even read books anymore? Are libraries, insofar as they are often perceived to be book warehouses, obsolete? Given all of that, the original Rutherford building appears to be a fossil, preserved in the amber of the more recent additions. Standing in the atrium, the flow of people clearly moves directly through the building and into the newer half. But if you head south, past the old stone facade and into a space filled with empty glass display cases, that's where you'll find the Bruce Peel Special Collections. Downwards, past flights of stone stairs that have literally been worn down by generations of feet, there lies an unassuming door in the basement. Deadlines and work being what it is, I finally tracked down what I was looking for fairly last minute, this morning in fact. But here I am, a few hours later, given access to the original human documents. And when I say that, I do mean the originals. Here in the special collection, I've put on hold four tablets, written in Sumeria roughly, 2,900 to 2,031 years before the Common Era. The first thing that strikes you is how tiny the tablets are. When we hear tablet, we might think of something like Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments, but these tablets, while housed in something the size of a thick CD jewel case, are themselves the size of a flash drive. They are dull brown in color, with small triangular etchings in them, densely written and crowding the surface of the tablet. What does poor penmanship and cuneiform look like is a question that immediately jumps to mind. While there are several sites proposed as independent inventions of writing, the most commonly agreed upon and earliest discovered instance is the Sumerian culture, located in what is now known as Iraq, developing somewhere between 3400 and 3300 BCE. As the Sumerians put it in their blockbuster hit in Merkar and the Lord of Arada from 1800 BCE, because the messenger's mouth was heavy and he couldn't repeat the message, the Lord of Kulaba pat some clay and put words on it, like a tablet. Until then, there had been no putting words on clay. It's important to realize that this monumental invention, writing, was actually part of a greater continuum of innovation. Sumerian cuneiform seems to have itself developed from earlier clay tokens and markings that tabulated commodities. As if to make this point, these tablets don't convey epic poetry or the actions of royalty. Rather, they are records of day-to-day -day transactions, a temple's receipt for a sacrificial lamb, a laborer's wages for agricultural work, etc. 
Later innovations in written language include explicit symbols for vowel sounds so that writing could more easily be reconstructed into spoken language, and the sort of retrovation that emojis represent in a return to pictograms, an earlier form of proto-writing like numerals. Since these initial words were written, the media and languages have transformed countless times. We've had papyrus scrolls in Egypt, found books made from bamboo and paper in China, indigenous codices in Mesoamerica, parchments made from animal skins, wax tablets, manuscripts copied by hand, the revolution that accompanied the widespread adoption of the printing press, the evolution of media beyond text in the 19th century, including braille, sound recording, and both static and moving film, and leading to our present digital moment, where we find ourselves surrounded not only by digitized information, but in specific and varied forms, like Web 2.0 or e-readers. And throughout it all, we have meta-commentary, texts written about the texts themselves. Accompanying these tablets are papers marked up with translator's notes, recreating the tablet's meaning for us here in the present day. That's because libraries are not only for storing information, but also for making it accessible to a community. Information may change containers, and as the digital revolution continues, libraries will change, sure, incorporating that digital information into their infrastructure. The purpose, however, remains the same, and in fact, keeping the technological continuum accessible is also important. A library is a place where, as much as practically possible, we are equally able to read a peer-reviewed academic paper published today, or a receipt created 5,000 years ago. Hi, this is Timothy Arthur. What I love about Dan's segment that you just heard is how warmly atmospheric it is, how it transports you to another space that isn't otherwise accessible right now which is especially appealing to me in lockdown when part of me wants to drop an ancient Sumerian tablet on my pinky toe just to feel something. Here's Dan again introducing a list of dystopian fiction that we hope might provide a temporary escape from our own dystopia. Dear Shout Crew, Miss y'all. I've been doing some reading to while away the time like a good library student. Some days I manage it pretty well, some days I can't even focus for more than a few seconds. There's been a lot of discourse online on how to use this time, quote-unquote, either getting to those projects or books you always meant to, or the okayness of just not. But the time, the duration, it exists all the same, waiting to be filled with something. So many years ago, it was December 2019, and we did some Decades End lists. Given that reading is a wonderful and cathartic way to spend time once the focus can be mustered up, we thought we'd revisit an appropriate reader's advisory from that episode. Number 10, Golden State by Ben Winters. I read this book just a couple of months ago and was totally captivated by its timely and controversial theme, truth. The society that Winters depicts is founded on the objectively so, and it entails panoptic surveillance, obsessive record keeping, and self-censorship. Although the truth is ultimately less pure than suggested, Golden State still offers an intriguing contrast to our post-truth society, in which subjectivity is pretty well accepted and certainly not criminalized. Number 9, The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. There were a lot of YA dystopian books this decade, so I present to you my token YA item. When The Hunger Games was released, many juvenile readers were starving for something to fill the Twilight Saga void. Well, this post-apocalyptic, violent, drama-ridden, action-slash-romantic love triangle sure did the trick. The Girl on Fire inspired many a young female to attempt to side-braid, take up archery, and contemplate the ethics of cold-blooded murder. 
we will not speak about the end of the third book. Number 8. Amped by Daniel H. Wilson In this futuristic sci-fi novel, we get a classic story of discrimination, except the thing that differentiates some humans, called amps, is an implant designed to treat brain dysfunction, which gives rise to some unintended superhuman abilities. It's a wicked premise, and I really dig the postmodern integration of bits of newspaper articles and court reports that break up the narrative. The main character leaves something to be desired, but I mean, as main characters in our own life stories, don't we all? Anyway, fun fact, I interviewed Daniel Wilson for an article years ago, and I still have his phone number saved in my contacts. Number 7, The Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi. Okay, I'm cheating. This book actually came out in September 2009, but here at Shout, we believe rules are meant to be broken when it comes to recommending incredible books. I read this gem of a novel in a science fiction comparative literature class years ago, and some of the images are still burned in my mind. The story, which is set in 23rd century Thailand, offers a powerful exploration of senteism, the agency of artificial intelligence, environmental devastation and global warming, Western consumerism, biotechnology, and science and religion. All that good dystopian stuff we fear and love. Number 6, Robopocalypse, by Daniel H. Wilson, again. When an artificial intelligence takes over the globally interconnected web of machines, robots turn against humans in a series of glitches that culminate into a full-on rebellion. And things get violent. Pretty graphically, disturbingly violent. And it's fantastic. We love Gruesome Death by Robot. And if you can't get enough technology-driven destruction, there's also a sequel called Robogenesis. Number 5, Mad Adam by Margaret Atwood. So, just a heads up, Mad Adam is actually the third book in the trilogy, so naturally I'm also recommending the first two books, Oryx and Crake and The Year of the Flood, which were released before the 2010s. Loophole? In this series, Atwood offers a thrilling exploration of genetic engineering and environmental destruction, with some heavy biblical vibes. Plus, there's lots of temporal shifts and stories within stories that leave you incredibly lost most of the time. So obviously I loved it, and so will you. Number four, The Circle by Dave Eggers. I'll just precursor this by noting that when I read this for an English class on surveillance societies, I think I was one of the few who truly loved this book. And it may partly be because I got a really good mark on my essay about it. I acknowledge my biases, but I'm still going to recommend the heck out of it. When May gets her dream job with Google, <clears throat> I mean Circle, Situated in Silicon Valley, she discovers an extreme version of what we all experience in the modern world. Absolute transparency, mandatory participation in social media, online data doubles, filtered communication, and the degradation of face-to-face -face interactions. Circlers abide by a fairly Orwellian mantra that proclaims sharing is caring, privacy is theft, and secrets are lies. And this philosophy is to blame for much of the disastrous consequences that ensue. The movie starring Tom Hanks and Emma Watson is comparatively meh, despite the obviously stellar casting. But go read the book. Just do it. Number three, Avengers Infinity War. Okay, if we're talking futuristic, apocalyptic, dystopian stuff, we can't not mention the work of Thanos in Avengers Infinity War. With the help of his bedazzled gauntlet, Thanos wipes out 50% of humanity in a devastating event that becomes known as the Snap. Thanos justifies his actions by claiming that most of society's problems stem from inadequate resources. 
thereby erasing half of the people means there should be enough space and food for everyone to share and get along, right? Mmm, dubious. Side note, if Tom Holland as Spider-Man doesn't make you well up at the end of the movie, you just can't really call yourself a Marvel fan. And you are probably a sociopath. That's just the facts. Number two, Black Mirror by Charlie Brooker. Okay, again, not a book, but I stand by it. So far, we've been blessed with five seasons and an interactive movie, Bandersnatch. This show is terrifyingly timely and reminds us of all the dangers and controversies of technological advancements. AI, online identities, virtual reality, political scandal, the list goes on. It functions as an anthology of standalone episodes, but there are always plenty of Easter eggs connecting the storylines. If you've read Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, you know the age-old theme of single-sidedness and unrestrained ambition having destructive consequences. Well, Black Mirror is basically a whole lot of that. My favorite episodes so far are White Bear, which is super dark and twisted, and San Junipero and Hang the DJ, which are two of the more semi-optimistic episodes. Number one, The Testaments. Homegirl Atwood added again with her recent release of the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. If you're not familiar with the premise, imagine a weird, religious, patriarchal world in which women's rights are fully restricted and a select group of women are ritually raped until they get pregnant. And people are color-coded. And if you break the rules, you get tortured or killed. Pretty dark stuff. On a brighter note, I loved the minds that Atwood gave us access to in this second installment. I won't give away any spoilers, but if you've not read it yet, be prepared to reevaluate some of your character perceptions. Also, mini shout out to the Incredible Handmaid's Tale HBO series. This came out at the perfect time, and it certainly has caught our attention. Something I love about dystopian fiction is that it simultaneously feels distant and immediate. It's easier to turn a blind eye to the hot mess that is our world, but dystopian fiction forces us to reflect on our vulnerability and consider how suddenly things can go from bad to worse. So there you have it, my top 10 recommendations. Take them or leave them. Feeling well advised and ready to obtain every item on this list? Be sure to hit up your local library, or Netflix, or Disney+. Plus. Ah, those halcyon days when dystopia was slightly more metaphorical. Too ironically, and I swear I am not even making this up, the last science fiction novel I read was Severance by Ling Ma, and the last short story I read was Inventory by Carmen Machado. And while both are phenomenal, 10 out of 10 would recommend. Both were also about apocalyptic pandemics, so boy howdy did I pick those wrong in terms of my own anxiety. Speaking of wrong picks, I'd like to use this as an opportunity to rectify one entry on my own list, the top 10 publications of previously published content during the 2010s. I'd put the reissue of the Prince album Purple Rain on the list at spot number 7, and while I in no way have changed my mind about the absolute supremacy and cultural importance of that particular album, there was a reissue that held a little more of a personal resonance for me. Back in 2013, I had just finished my undergrad. An album leaked onto the internet by the British artist Jay Paul, and I loved it, as did many people. I had it in heavy rotation for the whole summer, and have continued to play it ever since. However, it seemed one person wasn't excited, and that was Jay Paul himself. Although the leak was critically very well received, he vanished from the popular music hype machine completely. So then in June 2019, he officially released Leak 04-13 Bait Ones. As a pay-what-you-can download, publishing it alongside a note opening up about the tragic effect the leak had had on him and his practice. I encourage you to read it and download the album. There's an academies term, hauntology, and two writers, Fisher and Reynolds, 
use it in a sense that they describe as a nostalgia for lost futures. Listening to this reissue, I'm struck by the futures that it invokes, a very different articulation of anti-colonial joy and hope than the resulting decade seems to have contained. It's a moment of art, suspended in time, and I'm grateful to Jay Paul for creating it and heartbroken that it was compromised for him. Art like this, art that gives a voice to the alternative futures, is more important than ever. Take care of yourselves and your loved ones. From all of us at Shout. Our intro and outro music this week was the BTSTU demo and the Jasmine demo, respectively, both performed and composed by Jay Paul off the album I referred to earlier. <laughs>